0: Okay, so a couple of physicists walk into a bar. Just kidding. They're not at a bar. They're at a school. Scientists in training.
1: I'm sure this story seems strange to you, but to me it, w- it was just, you know, this is just like another day <laughs> in the in the physics world.
0: David Kesterbaum used to live in the physics world. These days he lives in our world. You can hear him in our world as part of NPR's Planet Money Team reporting on economics. But at the time of this story, he was getting a Ph.D. in high-energy particle physics at... Um, there's no way to avoid the name droppiness of what I'm about to say, at Harvard University. But to paraphrase uh, Us Magazine, Harvard physicists in certain ways around the office, they're just like us.
1: There's always a time of day when someone made a pot of very strong coffee and afterwards everyone drank the coffee and then didn't quite want to work yet. And so we all st- stood around and, and talked about various things. you know. And there was a blackboard or a whiteboard or something there. And um, we were talking about how n- nobody really had girlfriends.
0: So, this being physics world, the next logical thing to do was to employ the power of mathematics to estimate the likelihood of finding a girlfriend. And so they start jotting down a calculation.
1: I guess it's sort of a variation on, you know, this thing called the Drake equation? No. That is a way to estimate how many planets are out there that have uh, intelligent life on them.
0: Okay, so in this Drake equation, apparently you start with how many stars are in the universe, that is, all the places where there might be life. And then you subtract out all the stars that don't have planets around them, right, because there can't be life there. And then you subtract out all the planets that are too far from the sun or too close to the sun to support life and so on and so on. You get the idea until finally you come up with the likelihood of a planet with life evolved to the point of intelligence. Okay. They ran the same kind of math now, except, then I realize this is going to sound a little strange as I say this, they replaced intelligent life with girlfriends.
1: So I think we, we started to do the calculation on the board. And uh, can you look up what the population of Boston is?
0: Now, Dave is asking me to look this up because at this point in our interview, I actually made him run the math for me with real numbers that we got from the Internet. So he started with the population of Boston because he and his fellow physics students wanted girlfriends in Boston, where they all lived. The population of Boston, I found online, was a little under 600,000.
1: So you start with 600,000, which sounds great, except that half of them are guys, right? And I'm only interested in girls.
0: Okay, so it's 300,000.
1: And then uh, I want people, let's, you know, let's be honest, probably within you know 10 years of my age or something, right?
0: Okay, so 10 years on either side, so that means...
1: I'm actually looking at some numbers here. It looks like, it looks like if you go from 20 to 40, you're talking, that's still like 35% of the population, a third or something.
0: So that means that out of 300,000 women, that leaves 100,000 in his age range. These uh, being doctoral students, they wanted girlfriends who were college grads. Well, okay. About 25% of Americans over 25 years old have graduated from college. That knocks out roughly three-fourths of these women. Ouch. So you're down to, we were at 100,000, so you're down to 25,000.
1: Then then you start applying stuff like, you know, how, how often are they single?
0: Yeah, l- let's say half of them are single. So now you're down to 12,500.
1: Yeah, see, it's getting scary now, right?
0: And then, of course, you get to how many people are actually attractive to you. And even if you give a really high percentage, like one in five, okay, that knocks your pool of candidates down from 12,500 to
1: 2,500. In the whole city of Boston, right? Yeah. That's just like a needle in a haystack.
0: And that 2,500 is before you get anything personal, like your religion or how you see the world, what's your sense of humor. So... Dave and his fellow students are talking about this, these rather kind of uh, you know d- depressing numbers,
1: and one of the professors comes in. She's not married either, and so we start to draw it for her, and then we start to say, well, okay, half of them are men, so we'd circle half, and then we'd say, well, what's the age group you're interested in? And then we'd sort of circle a smaller subset. And then she had all these other requirements, like the guy had to be taller than her, and she's pretty tall, so <laughs> that really limited things. And then she said he had to be smarter than her, You know, and she's a Harvard physics professor, so that was even smaller. And basically, we got down to there being nobody. (laughs) (laughs) She's alone.
0: During this period of your life, when you would think about these numbers, um, were you sure the entire time that there was somebody out there?
1: Yeah. I don't know why. But, you know... At the beginning of every mathematical proof, people often write, Assume that there exists X. (laughs) Assume we have an infinite surface bound by something, you know, or whatever. Right. It's like assume there exists some girlfriend. There's totally that act of faith underneath it, yeah. But I had a more scientific view, which is that there are people out there, you know, who might be right for me. Not just one person. Like, that seemed... Like some in a silly novel or something, you know. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't believe there's just one. If there were just one person out there, good luck. They could speak Chinese, you know. <laughs> they probably do, right? What are the odds you're going to find them and the translator? You got to believe there's more than one person. But
0: if you do believe that there is more than one person for you, you really might want to keep that belief to yourself. Sometimes this may be one of those ideas that you don't want to take out of the classroom and bring into the real world. Case in point.
2: It was definitely early on in our relationship, and I think it was our
0: first big fight. This is somebody else from the immediate world of our radio show, Alex Bloomberg, one of our producers. A while ago, he and his then-future wife, Nazanin, were out on a date, and because they were newly in love, the topic of conversation was
2: how great it was that we were in love (laughs) and how happy we were to have found each other. And it felt so faded, you know, and... She asked, do you really think that we were the only one for each other? And I said, I don't know if you're the only one for me, but I think that you have to be at least one in 100,000, is what I said. Which I thought was, (laughs) in retrospect, now that I'm telling the story, that sounds really bad.
0: (laughs) I was kind of holding my tongue over here, actually. (laughs) Yeah.
2: At the time, I thought it was a romantic statement. Because one out of 100,000, there's, there's, what is there, like six or seven billion people on the planet? Sure.
3: He picked 100,000, which probably doesn't make any scientific sense and also made me feel bad.
0: So if Alex thought that saying that there are 100,000 other women that he could love was simply another way of saying how rare love is, 100,000 seemed like a small number to Alex, Nazanin did not see it that way.
3: I know it's ridiculous to think that there's like one person out there for everybody but it definitely feels that way right when you're like falling in love and it's not like i actually expect him to believe it but he wouldn't even say it
0: <laughs> wait he wouldn't say like
3: he wouldn't even just say i was the only person for him like he he couldn't even
0: he had to he, get all scientific yeah
3: exactly he had to get all scientific like he couldn't just he could just like lie for a second yeah <laughs> It's just like a fundamental difference you know like to me it makes me feel good to think that we're the only ones out there for each other and to him I think it makes him feel bad (laughs) I think it freaks him out I think the idea that like I'm it in the whole world (laughs) makes him feel really I don't know um it's just it just seems impossible and stupid and not and not and also that just like there's it's a lot of pressure
0: yeah it's a lot of pressure there's a saying that, that goes something like, how terrible to love what can perish. Right. You
3: know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. But like, you know, if there's like 100,000 people. It's not that terrible to love something that can perish.
0: <laughs> well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. Today on our show, stories of people looking for and finding the one person out there who is just for them, even if it is just a pleasant lie that there is just one person out there for each of us. Stay with us. Back one, it's not over till the fat man sings. What's amazing about this guy who you're about to hear next is that he kind of decides that this girl is for him, and he pursues this girl against some really tough odds, even before he's fully in love, with the girl. Sarah Canning tells what happened.
4: This romance begins with a man named Bao Gong, a strong, masculine man, an incorruptible judge. Bao Gong was a famous character in Beijing opera, and in 1995, he was played, briefly, by a six-foot3, 250-pound white guy from the Midwest named Eric Hayo.
5: And then there was the really, there was this fast part where he's reading the scroll that was like Fu ma ye jin qian kan duan xiang shang xi ye jing chang lian de san shi san." Uh, no, I'm not gonna remember the rest. I don't know where it goes. Uh, I thought I could handle it, if I, but it's something like that.
4: Eric didn't really set out to sing the part of Baogong. He was 23 years old at the time, and on an exchange program in Tianjin, learning Chinese. He took an opera class on a lark, and after a couple of months of baffling rehearsals, found himself on stage dressed in a heavy silken and velvet robe, head shaved, face completely covered in black, red, and white makeup, and hanging down like a thick curtain from his chin, a perfectly straight, two-foot-long black beard. To prepare for this moment, Eric's teacher had given him a cassette tape of the part, singing the entire thing, and even imitating the instruments, so Eric would know his cues.
5: And I had no idea what those sounds referred to. I'd actually never heard the objects that made those sounds. And then on the tape, there'd be this, tongue, cha chai, tongue, chai, tongue. And then, and then I was supposed to start singing, right? He would also sing, like, and so all this stuff, and, 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 and then I was like, I don't know what that is, but okay, and I knew I wasn't supposed to sing it, right? But I, I kind of, and so then we walk in, and there's an instrument going, not exactly, but you know, something like it.
4: The sound was coming from a chingarhu, a two-stringed instrument that's played upright with a horsehair bow and playing it across the rehearsal room from Eric that day was a 19-year-old musician named Yuan Yuan Di.
5: I mean, I remember, I just could not stop looking at her. And it was it was incredibly intense. And I remember I, I couldn't stop staring at her. And um, I mean, this is a ridiculous thing to remember. Um, her back was very, very, very straight. Just something about her posture was incredibly compelling to me. And um, she just looked, uh, she looked very beautiful. I mean, she was incredibly beautiful. And, and um, so I, I, you know, I was sitting on the other side of the room trying to figure out like how I was gonna get to meet her, knowing that you know, my Chinese was not adequate to the task of actually having a conversation with her.
4: I'm gonna go ahead and kill the suspense right here and tell you that Eric gets the girl. So of course they did meet. Yuan Yuan's teacher introduced them. Here's
6: Yuan Yuan. I'm not used to seeing a, such a tall and a big person. in my life. So I felt a little intimidated by having to look up all the time. So uh, yeah, it was the first time talking to a foreign-looking and a foreign-speaking person. Mm -hmm. I was a little nervous, yeah. Somehow they agreed
4: to meet outside rehearsal. Neither remembers much about that first encounter, except that it was pleasant and proper, and there was a dictionary in constant use. Their first real date was for lunch. Yuan Yuan invited him to a fancy restaurant. It was her first time ever eating at such an expensive place. They both tried hard to be sophisticated, but the culture divide nearly defeated them.
5: She is doing this very Chinese thing, which is to order crazy amounts of food, just crazy amounts of food. I mean, I would say like 10 dishes for two people. I mean, like an enormous amount of food. And also the the weirder um, and more exotic stuff is the more kind of you're showing your hospitality.
6: And I order something... Uh, Some kind of a bird, either pigeon or even smaller bird, that is maybe deep fried with every part on the table. (laughs) And uh, for Chinese people, a lot of people do eat every part. the feet, the head and the eyes and so on.
5: And so I was just eating stuff and, you know, I I had no idea what I was eating. Uh, And so at one point I put this thing in my mouth.
6: And he just casually carried on the conversation and put the head into his mouth
5: and I bite down and it's hard. And I think, oh no, like, what is this thing? And then I thought, well, maybe it's like an M&M and if I suck on it, it'll disintegrate, you know? Cause like, I had no idea, right? So I kind of, you know, suck on it for a while.
6: I was thinking, wow, he must be really like it. I don't eat head. I, I know my mom eats, but I absolutely hate it. I don't even want to look at it.
5: And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to take this out of my mouth. And, you know, that's not great. Uh, and so I take it out of my mouth and I put it on the plate. And I point at the dish it came from. And I say to Yun-Yang, what is that? And she says, oh, it's blah, 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 right? This word that I had never heard. And I say, well, what's that? And she says, the word of the thing that it is. And at precisely the instant which I grasp that word, I have this kind of total epiphanic clarity of the object on the plate in front of me, which is the head with beak and eye of a bird, right? Like this just terrifying thing that I had sucked on. Let me just say, so like whatever brains were in the bird, I I ate those, right? Like I'd like, and so like all of that came to me and I freak out just saying over and over in a really high-pitched, kind of squealy, frightened voice, oh
6: my god, oh my god, oh my god, in English. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, many, many times, repeatedly, one after the other, and his hands just thrown up in the air and down, and I didn't know what was happening. I was just thinking, why was he so dramatically upset with a bird head, I had no idea. So, if you don't eat it, you just don't put it in your mouth, but why is <laughs> so scared?
4: They had a couple more dates, even though they both knew it couldn't possibly go anywhere. Eric was leaving China in two weeks. They spent a day in Beijing, where he almost lost her in a crowded train station, and she invited him to an opera performance. But Tianjin flooded that day, and it took him hours to reach her, slogging through the filthy water and bare feet.
5: And I remember at the time that she was not nearly impressed enough uh, by my having walked through the flood. I remember thinking, like, she saw me and she's like, oh, hey, how you doing? And I'd been trying for, like, literally two hours to get to her right and uh you know and she was just like oh good to see you but that that you know that's that that desperation of like needing to find the person that I remember that twice really intensely both both in, on the day of the flood and the day of the train station of just this sense that you have to find this person um and you know that kind of is overwhelming um I'm teaching Proust this week, and so there's this moment in Proust where Swann is, is falling in love with Odette, but the way that he realizes that he's falling in love with her is he goes to the party that she's supposed to meet her at, and she's already gone, and then he like drives his carriage through Paris, and is like going in and out of all these restaurants and stuff, and, and you know, it's all about how the act of looking for her causes him in some sense not only to recognize that he's in love with her, but also actually to kind of really fall in love with her.
4: Eric wasn't in love with Yuan Yuan exactly but he was in serious crush. And then he went home to America and more or less let it go. She wrote a letter, and he answered it, and she wrote again, and he never even read the second letter. It was just too much work deciphering the Chinese, so that was that. Yuan Yuan went off to conservatory in Beijing to study the Qingarhu, an opera, and didn't think too much about Eric, either. After all, they hadn't kissed or anything, hadn't even held hands. But two years later, in 1997, Eric decided to go back to China to study, this time for a year. He started thinking about Yuan Yuan again.
5: I certainly had, had kind of, I don't know, dreamed, imagined, fantasized, whatever about like, you know, getting together with her. Um, I also knew that, you know, it was two years and that we hadn't talked. Um,
6: did you feel like you
4: even knew her, considering the, the language barrier and the cultural barrier, you know what I mean? Did, did you feel like you had a sense of who she was even? You know, that is,
5: that's a, that's a really good question. I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I No. I mean, I guess, I, looking back now, no, right? I, I don't think that if you'd asked me that at the time, I would have denied it vociferously. But, I mean, what could I know? You know, I mean, what did I know? I knew her smile. I knew that, like, the angle of her back. But I, I honestly hadn't really thought it out too much. I was pretty focused uh, on finding her and, and hadn't really thought past the finding her. And so I had her phone number, so I called that number, and I got this number's my disconnected message, right? And and though I barely understood, I mean, it was trying. I, so I had to actually call three or four times to like listen to the message, you know, the person speaking. Um, and so then I was lo- I was lost, right? I had no way to find her. And um, so I decided. I mean, I guess I decided that I would go and look for her.
4: This is an insanely ambitious proposition. Beijing is a city of roughly 15 million people. There are probably more than 100 universities there. And all Eric's got is her name, her picture, and the fact that she plays the Ching Ahu. There's no phone book, no internet, but he doesn't think any of that matters. So a few days after he arrives in Beijing, he simply asks around for the name of a university with a good music department. Then he gets in a cab, shows the driver the address. His Chinese is terrible at this point, but he remembers the word for office and so finds his way to the music department, and asks about Yuan Yuan Di. A nice older lady informs him that Yuan Yuan isn't a student there, but why doesn't he try another place, an opera school? So he gets in another cab, which gets lost, and then finally finds it, and Eric goes to the office of the second music school. It's a middle and high school, but Eric doesn't know that.
5: And I start explaining, you know, who I am, so I'm like, excuse me, I'm sorry to bother you, and there's like four or five people um, there, and they're all smoking, they're all drinking tea, it's kind of classic Chinese afternoon, no one's working kind of thing, and you know, one person is kind of dealing with me, but everyone's just totally paying attention because it's weird. And I have the photo and I have Yuan Yun's name. And I'm explaining that I met this young woman a couple of years ago in Tianjin and I was singing Chinese opera. And they're like, oh, you sing Chinese opera? And I was like, well, you know, a little bit. And I'm not very good at it. And they all laugh. And I mean, this is like part of my trick.
4: Eric's trick, what he was banking on, was his erstwhile stardom. Two years earlier, when he had sung the part of Bao Gong, the famous judge, he had become momentarily famous. He was all over the radio and on TV, talking and singing. Even Yuan Yuan's grandparents had seen his picture in the papers. So when faced with any difficult situation in China, he knew he had the secret power, which he could deploy at will. Apparently, Chinese people really like seeing foreigners do Chinese stuff, kung fu, calligraphy.
5: And they really, really like seeing foreigners sing Chinese songs to the point that there's a show on television every year called "Foreigners Sing Chinese Songs. Like a special? Like a special, yeah. Like the once a year special "Foreigners Sing Chinese Songs. And, you know, like there's no equivalent of that in the United States. Like, and and so there was, there's this fascination and the fascination is twofold, right? The fascination is, is first, you know, comes from a sense that, you know, a a kind of cultural inferiority, especially at the time which any Western investment in things Chinese was taken to be a sign of respect. And then, but also very clearly a sense of like, watch the monkey you know, sing a song. I mean, that, you know, that, that, that doesn't matter how well the monkey sings. If the monkey's singing a song, that's already impressive because it's a monkey and it's a song. Right. So knowing what I did about like, you know, how much Chinese people love picking opera and then these people I'd never, you know, so it was the thing I figured if I could make this happen and I end up singing for them.
4: Again, here's that fast part. Fu Ma Yi Jinsen kan duan siang Chang Xiao
5: Jing Chang the Sun True or Swin or Juang Ta Fu Malang the Ji Jin Chuang Me Hong Changar Jiao Dong Tang Sha Chi Mi Liang Xin Sang Bi Su Han Si Miao Tang Jiang Zhuang Ji Ya Chu Zala Yi Di Da Tang Shang
4: It works. Everybody Claps. Everyone's Happy. He ends up hanging out with the staff for two hours. And finally, someone calls someone else, and it turns out Yuan Yuan's former teacher happens to be at the high school that day. And all of a sudden, Eric gets news. Yuan Yuan has graduated from the conservatory, which anyway is in a different building a half hour away, but he's got her beeper number. And then it takes three days for Eric to figure out how to beeper properly, and meanwhile Yuan Yuan has stopped responding to the beep. She thinks maybe a friend is playing a trick on her. But finally, they connect on the phone. Yuan Yuan is stunned.
6: He said his name, I said, couldn't be, but how could you know my phone number? How could you even call me? That's impossible. I tried to ask all these questions, but he clearly lost almost all his Chinese language, so he couldn't really explain things. So he said, "Could you meet me?" I said, "Yes." Uh, when? He said, "Tomorrow." I said, "Sure."
4: She's more than an hour late, and sure he'll be gone by the time she arrives. But he isn't. He's sitting there, waiting. He looks different to her. He's got hair on his head and his face. And she looks different to him, too. Not as luminous as she'd been in his imagination. But they have a nice walk, and now that he's got a whole year in China, they start spending time together. A lot of time. And as the weeks go by, Eric is trying to figure out how to kiss her. Surprisingly difficult,
5: She just did not help me, like at all. I mean, like at all, at all. And so, I would try to do these things that were like, okay, so this is this is a perfect example of of why things were confusing. So we're walking down the street. I nudge her with my shoulder the way that you do, like when you're flirting with someone, right? She, I only find this out later because we talked about it. She thinks, oh. Like, w- he's kind of a clumsy walker. I should move further away from him. I nudge her again. She thinks, oh, maybe he's trying to tell me I should walk on the other side of him. And she switches sides. So she's, like, totally incapable of reading codes. I mean, this, you know, just like last week, we were watching a movie where, like, some guy nudged someone. And I was like, hey, see that? See that? That's how it works. That's how you know,
6: right? But she had just no capacity. I sensed that he wanted to kiss me. But I was not ready or shy or just tried to shy away. So I just tried to pretend I didn't pick up this thing though, I guess. Um, Had you kissed other, another boy before then? No. So that was your first kiss? Yeah.
4: Eventually, Yuan Yuan heard all the details of how Eric tracked her down. He was hoping she would think it was romantic. How he searched for her and her alone in a city of so many millions. Nope.
6: First thing came to mind was crazy. I wouldn't do the same. Really? Why yeah. I thought why would you go through all this trouble because people are everywhere? Why do you want to go through the trouble just to find one particular person? If this is a reversed story, I was in Eric's position, I wouldn't do the same at all. Still, it's kind of a puzzle to me. <laughs> I wouldn't go to a huge city trying to track down one person. Uh, I, I just think it's too much work. He's more romantic than I am. I'm more practical. More practical and also more Chinese. I think there's a saying in Chinese is uh, means what is meant to be is meant to be. You don't have to look really hard. Especially when it comes to relationship, there's a specific time and location that it meant for the two of you to meet, to get together. And you just have to wait for your turn, and that's something you cannot request, basically. After
4: Eric left China that year, Yuan Yuan came to the States on a 90-day fiancé visa meaning if they didn't get married within 90 days, she'd have to leave and probably not be able to return. So they did get married, but neither of them was really ready at the time. And in the first few years, Eric says it was really hard. The novelty had worn off. The framework of their entire relationship was an ocean away. And now here they were realizing they didn't actually know each other all that well. During that time, they often found themselves telling people the story of how they met and fell in love.
5: And I think we lived on that, um, and it helped us. And helped helped us be brave, and you know, and reinforced to us, uh, to each other, this sense of kind of the, the magic of our relationship and the, and the kind of the sort of fairy tale nature of it. Um, and I think that we needed it then more, right? Like that you would think like, oh, you know, a story that starts that way, how could it end up badly?
4: After going through those rough years, when they even considered splitting up, the story of how they met came to feel less and less important, and they didn't talk about it as much. Now they have a different story.
5: Which is the story of like struggle and, and, and pain, and, uh, sort of passed through and, and fought through and, and, and overcome. And, you know, that's, that's a story that you don't tell in public. Because no one ever asks, how did you two stay together? Everyone always asks, how did you two meet?
4: Minus the singing, and the long black beard, and the jingarhu, and the beeper, and all the rest of it, Eric and Yuan Yuan had to make that same transition that all couples do. From the crazy and love stage to the other thing, the hard part of love. And it's when you're in that struggle that you most need the story of how you're meant to be. Because the alternative, that the person you're with could be any one of hundreds or thousands of other people, well, if that's true, then why even try? <laughs>
0: Sarah Koenig is one of the producers of our show. Coming up, okay, if you found the one, the one for you, the one you've been looking for, how can you still be number two? Answers in a minute. There's Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life from Glass. Each week in our show, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, somewhere out there, stories of people searching for that one person who will understand them in a way that nobody else does. We've arrived at act two of our show now, act two, my girlfriend's boyfriend. Comedian Mike Birbiglia has this story of s- some of the extreme things that some of us put up with when we believe that we have found the one person in the world for us. Uh, he recorded this in front of a live audience, and uh, quick warning, there's not really any sexual prurient content in the story, but Mike does refer to the fact that sex exists and happens between people.
7: When I was a senior in high school, I had my first girlfriend, Amanda, and, and this was a big deal for me because um, it was that, that first time you, you fall in love where you're like, oh, there is someone for me. You know, This is it. Like, I, I found her. And, and she was great. She was so beautiful, and she played tennis, and she wrote for the newspaper, and she was, a, she was a bad girl. And I was a kind of dorky nerd, kind of an outcast. This was at a boarding school that I, I didn't board at. I was only there because my family lived nearby. And, and she had major street cred. She had been expelled from her previous school for dealing acid. <laughs> I remember at one point she said it was totally messed up because it was actually this other girl who was dealing acid and I was framed. And I was like, awesome.
8: <laughs>
7: I just, I thought it was one of those things where we were opposites and we knew it and, and that made it more exciting. Like, where, where she wanted to be a writer and in student government and I wanted to know what it was like to be cool.
8: <laughs>
7: well, I, I find that when you fall in love, you tend to overlook certain red flags one of them was that she was a liar and I don't mean that in an offensive way Uh, at boarding school lying is something of a way of life I remember there was this one guy in my class he was a legendary liar his name was Keith Robbins and he he, he used to lick his fingers like a bookie he would go yeah yeah nice 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 and he he would lie about things that weren't important. Like, he'd be like, yeah, yeah, nice. My uncle's Tony Robbins, motivational speaker. Yeah, nice. And I found out later that that wasn't even true. But even if it were, it wouldn't be that impressive, you know? I, so, that, so you didn't bother protesting it. you just go, oh, okay, Keith. You know. I, the other red flag was that Amanda used to say really mean stuff to me. And then she'd say, only kidding she'd be like you're not good at anything only kidding nobody likes you at all only kidding (laughs) the final red flag was that she told me not to tell anyone she was my girlfriend (laughs) she had another boyfriend at home that she was in the process of breaking up with and it was over But if it got back to him, you know, it'd be bad. So she would go home every weekend and visit him, and at one point she said she had to go home more frequently because his parents were sick. So she had to console him in that, and I thought, well, you know, the guy's parents are dying, so I ought to be understanding. (laughs) I also put up with it because I I couldn't believe how lucky I was just to be with her. Like, in, in retrospect, I understand how selfish she was, but at the time, I didn't know that. When you're in a relationship with someone who's selfish... What keeps you in it is the fact that when they shine on you, it's like this souped-up shine. And you feel like you're in the club, and you don't even know what the club is. You just you know you want to stay in it. We'd been going out two months, and we went on Christmas break, and she invited me to meet her parents in New Hampshire. And this was very exciting. This was going to be my big moment. It would vindicate me and legitimize me as the main boyfriend. And so I drive my mom's Volvo station wagon from Massachusetts to New Hampshire and I meet her parents and it's going really well and then this guy shows up (laughs) and his name is Scott and then the three of us are hanging out and it dawns on me that I'm hanging out with my girlfriend's boyfriend (laughs) And it's going okay. <laughs>
8: he,
7: he seemed like a good guy. He was an all-state wrestler, but uh, and he was remarkably nice. Uh, I could totally see what she saw in him. <laughs> and there was some consolation because every time he would go to the bathroom or go to the, into the other room, she would be very affectionate towards me. She'd kiss my neck or say something in her sweet voice. But then there was a moment where I was in the bathroom. <laughs> and I thought, what's happening in the other room? <laughs> the day took a strange turn when Scott suggests that we go hang out at his house. And so we go, and I meet his parents. And it's a very strange thing meeting your girlfriend's boyfriend's <laughs> parents. <laughs> Part of you is angry for obvious reasons, and then part of you still wants to make a good impression. As a side note, they seemed in perfect health. I drive home defeated, and I sort of knew that at this point this was her life, and I was like her secret life, like on Mori Povich. So I was like, this is it. You know, I'm going to stick up to for myself. It's either him or me. And I, I convinced myself that given the, that choice, she would go with me, because what we had was so special. So when we got back to school, I called her, and I said, we need to talk. Let's meet at the hockey game. And she says, great. And so I go to the hockey game, and she's not there. Hockey game ends, still no sign. I had that pit in my stomach, you know, like, this was going to be my moment, and I was going to tell her that she had to pick me, or that's it. And so I start walking around the school to the library, to the cafeteria, the places she might be, and I ask people where she is, and finally someone says, I saw her with Keith Robbins down at the tennis courts. I remembered earlier that day at lunch, Keith had said to me, I'm sleeping with your girlfriend, you know that, right? (laughs) And I thought, well, first of all, I hadn't even slept with my girlfriend, so that would be insane. And second of all, he's a liar, so he, he must be lying. I remember I said to him, yeah, I know.
8: <laughs>
7: but at this moment, it dawns on me that Keith was her new second boyfriend, and I was done. And it was that horrible, lonely feeling where you're walking around someplace, and there are people all around, and... There's only one person you want to be with no matter how mean they've been to you." I just wanted to hear that only kitten. I remember people were coming up to me and I couldn't even hear them. I couldn't even tell them what had happened because even though I was being dropped, the relationship itself was based on a secret. And that spring I graduated. Keith was expelled for making fake IDs in his dorm room. (laughs) He had built a life-sized license from Arkansas that people stuck their face in. (laughs) And he would photo it and then laminate it. He later took a job at Goldman Sachs. (laughs) That detail seems made up, it's actually true. And and Amanda was expelled the next year for dealing Ritalin. (laughs) At boarding school, you can't go to the graduation if you're expelled. It's one of the shames of being expelled, and it's very strict. And I found out later that Amanda actually did show up to the graduation in a disguise. She wore a wig and sunglasses. My friends laughed about this, the way the friends do to make you feel better when you've had your heart broken. But I could relate to her doing that. Because sometimes when you want to be in a place so badly, you'll do anything.
0: Mike Rubiglio, The story is part of a book that he's putting together called Sleepwalk With Me and Other Stories.
8: When I was a young boy, my mama said to me, only
0: one girl in the world, Well our program whole was produced today way. by Jane Felters, Robin Semion, and me with Alex Bloomberg, sir, Kenny Gleeplack, Alyssa Ship and Nancy Updike, our senior producers, Julie Snyder, production from Andy Dixon and Brian Reed. Seth Lynde is our production manager, Emily Condon is our office manager, Music help from Jessica Hopper. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International, WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, I gave Tori a tape of a recent show, and I told him he had to listen to this show, and he keeps making these excuses. He swears there is something wrong with the recording. And then on the tape,
5: there'll be this.
0: I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.